0: Tracy, it is raining in Los Angeles.
1: Ooh, so what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. is you're having a good day.
0: I am having such a good day.
1: (laughs) Has it been raining all day? Have you been able to get all nice and cozy?
0: Oh, babe, it's been raining since last night, since (gasps) before I went to bed. I curled up with tea. I curled up with my book. I plugged in a hot pad and stuck it in the covers with me. (laughs) I got cozy.
1: Oh, I'm so happy for you. You deserve that kind of energy. Did you have any kind of candle? That would have been the thing that sealed it.
0: I did, actually. Uh, but I. <laughs> Shoot. I don't want to say what candle it was because it's going to seem like way too sponsory because it's oh, the no. candle you gave me. <laughs> 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 oh my God.
1: Tracy, you can't ask me these questions. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to be an active listener. How's that going for you? <laughs>
0: Fairly, I'm not well.
1: <laughs> Apparently, I asked the one question I'm not supposed to.
0: <laughs> How dare you ask me about myself? I just want
1: to know about you and your life. <laughs> I just I want to get to know you. I feel like I haven't gotten a chance to get to know you i'm really slow at it it only takes like a decade maybe two (laughs) yeah i don't know you at all
0: i don't not a bit Mm -mm. god what are you even like
1: god don't ask me that i don't know
0: (laughs) the look of terror that crossed your face when i asked
1: you that i don't want I'm, i'm here to talk about fun things i'm not here to be introspective
0: That was the podcast version of I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Yes, (laughs) it was. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Noted. Yes, indeed. We have reached the point in quarantine Mm -hmm. where I am simultaneously afraid that the world will never open and that the world will open And I think that my entire personality is also now just the media that I consume. Books, movies, social media.
1: All of us feel that way. I don't know how to interact with people. People, I have to pretend that I'm in any way interested in going back to the office. Are they allowed
0: to do that ever? Like. After all of this time of us working at home in our own little bubbles, are they allowed to make us go be people together again?
1: Mhm. Yeah, I think they are and I'm going to push real hard because I love rolling out of bed 10 minutes before a meeting and jumping on.
0: The best part is when you have a Zoom call, you know, you can just throw on a necklace and you're like, yeah, I'm dressed. This was a choice.
1: My outfit today was the clothes I slept in with a necklace and some lipstick. Did you sleep in the necklace on the lipstick? Of course not. Not a monster.
0: <laughs> tell everyone be... that I picked out your lipstick.
1: Everyone Rowan picked out my lipstick. <laughs> Rowan, tell them where you found the lipstick.
0: Well, you see, everyone, it went thusly. <laughs> I found a TikTok on Tracy's and my share TikTok. (laughs) 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 Oh, we are so enmeshed. Okay. So I found a TikTok of a girl recommending lipsticks that were inspired by coffee. Mm -hmm. And this lovely woman swatched two colors. And one was the perfect Tracy color. And one I had picked out for myself. (laughs) And, you know, whatever. Many people can have many things. But I sent it to Tracy and just said, you know, you need to buy this. And it took all of the one minute for her to play the TikTok before she was texting me back in all caps. Where?
1: Yeah, I bought three. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's only five in the collection.
0: (laughs) It's true. But those five... I would argue, you would not like. Not that no one would like them. It's just
1: you in particular. I I had, yeah, one I already have like six of. And the other I just wasn't mm, as sold on.
0: Uh, The color that I chose makes me look like, I keep wanting to say an anemic Victorian boy, but the fact that it is lipstick and boys in the Victorian era were super not big on a strong liquid lip
1: Um. (laughs) no but you have that strong victorian boy with consumption energy you got Uh, the like
0: consumption why do you always have to remind me of that word every time i'm trying (laughs) to describe people what i want to look like tracy has to pop in and
1: like whisper terminal illness yeah your aesthetic is tuberculosis (laughs)
0: Oh my god, I'm dying. Okay, hi, I'm Rowan Hall. My aesthetic is tuberculosis.
1: I am Tracy. Uh, My aesthetic is coffee lipstick.
0: And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient diseases, local businesses, and why coffee is ideal for everything.
1: Wow. Well done.
0: Okay, we got through it.
1: (laughs) I liked it. If you would like to support us, you can subscribe, leave us a review, find us on Patreon at patreon.com willingandfable. Check out the merch on our willingandfable.com site, or you can just continue listening to our episodes. No matter what you choose, we appreciate you.
0: But if you can leave a review in which you find a way to classily work in the word consumption... We'll be extra proud and we will definitely read it on the
1: podcast. 100%. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) So, kind of jumping backwards to my candle moment, Uh, another way that you can support our podcast is by supporting our friends. So, this week we are bringing you stories about witches. So, we reached out to our new friend Ashley at Old Growth Alchemy. And Tracy and I have mentioned. Old Growth a couple of times because she got me some Mm -hmm. items from the store for the holidays, including the darn candle that I was burning last night. (laughs) (laughs) So we reached out to Ashley, who is the artist behind Old Growth, and she let us geek out about teas and the inspiration behind some of her blends. I've been slowly working my way through the flavors because Tracy sent me... More than a few. Um, mm-hmm. So when we talked to her, I asked her for the story behind her Hexenhaus tea blend. And Ashley told us it was inspired by the witch's gingerbread cottage in Hansel and Gretel. Hexenhaus is witch house in German, and the blend is inspired by the ingredients and flavors of Lebkuchen, which would have been what the house was likely made of or the reference in Hansel and Gretel. Tracy knows this about me, but I like tea that secretly thinks it's a dessert because <laughs> <laughs> yes, I want to have do. it after dinner. Uh, so that is my go-to now.
1: So you guys all know that I love tea. We talk about it. I love tea, but coffee has my heart. And I am Trader. the coffee drinker. <laughs> What that means is when I saw the Nut Brown Draft described as an herbal coffee blend, I had to ask. The name was inspired by the Red Wall series, and Ashley said, I wanted to make something like that brew that folks would go back for again and again, and the idea of making it like an herbal coffee was perfect. Obviously not a true substitute in flavor, but it has the rich earthiness with dandelion root, sweetness from honeybush, Cacao and cinnamon, and a nuttiness from buckwheat, with just a little kick from chipotle to embolden the flavors.
0: I love buckwheat teas. They're very filling. They they ca- mm-hmm. they have this thick quality to them. uh yeah, Oh shoot! I'm gonna like that, even though I don't like coffee.
1: <laughs> it's but it's it doesn't taste like coffee. It's just it's very grounded.
0: Mm mm. Okay, I. Yeah, I get it. I wish we lived closer so we could actually exchange teas. But everyone, we cannot recommend Old Growth Alchemy enough. Tracy came across Ashley's work during the holidays through the Darksome Art and Craft Market, which we've also talked about more than a couple of times. And now, because we have a podcast, we got to reach out to her uh, and basically be fangirls. So if you want to try her custom blended teas, head over to oldgrowthalchemy.com. You'll find Old Growth's Instagram linked on ours this week. And of course, if you do try her teas, please tell her that Willing and Fable sent you. Now,
1: Rowan, on to the history, witches. (laughs) (laughs) Witches have been hunted all over the world for many centuries. Many cultures have different terms for these types of magic women, And today, we'll be focusing less on the history of witch hunts and instead bring you two stories of women who were accused of this so-called vile act. According
0: to the History Channel, early witches were people who practiced witchcraft using magic spells and calling upon spirits for help or to bring about change. Most witches were thought to be pagans doing the devil's work. Many, however, were simply natural healers or so-called wise women, whose choice of profession was misunderstood. It's unclear exactly when witches came on the historical scene, but one of the earliest records of a witch is in the Bible, in the book of Samuel thought to be written between 931 BC and 721 BC. It tells the story of when King Saul sought the witch of Endor to summon the dead prophet Samuel's spirit to help him defeat the Philistine
1: army. From the 1400s all the way through to the 18th century, witch hunting was a common practice in Europe and America. The Malleus Maleficarum, a witch hunting book written by two Catholic clergymen, Heinrich Kramer and Jakob Sprenger, though Sprenger's contributions are questioned. This book was published in Spire, Germany in 1486. Translated to The Hammer of Witches, this book elevates sorcery to the criminal status of heresy and recommends that secular courts prosecute it as such.
0: I recognize that in this case, hammer is not hammer, but I do always imagine a Thor-style witch When I hear about the Malleus Maleficarum.
1: I always imagined it as a hammer against witches. Oh, okay. I'm regretting that because yours is way better.
0: So my personal game that I'm dragging you into because I can Mm -hmm. is throughout this episode, we have to come up with good names for teas based on our stories.
1: Ooh, ooh, you know I love naming things. Mm -hmm. You know I love, like, making – I make candles and teas and soaps, and I like to name them all. This is fun. I like this is what I'm saying.
0: When I was a kid, I thought I was going to grow up and become the person who named nail polish colors.
1: You would be really good at that.
0: I thought that was just someone's job. One person just sitting around with all of the colors going, oop, this one is now named – Great aunt's slipper and this one is now named <laughs> ex-husband's eyeball, like just <laughs> in an assembly line.
1: Ex-husband i ex-husband's eyeball did just throw me. It did. <laughs> what color do you think that is? The problem is I'm imagining the eyeball on its own, so I'm actually imagining a sort of cream.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was picturing. Um a kind of a, a bluish cream rather than a reddish cream.
1: Mm, I was picturing very uh, red-based cream, like the color that you're, you're – if you ever paint someone's eyes, the whites of their eyes are not in any way actually white. And if you paint them that way, they look crazy. Oh, yeah. And so imagining that kind of red tone that's on the around the outsides and then like how there's the blue-based cream on the insides near the iris.
0: We don't care about color at all. Not in any no, way. No, no, not at, not at all.
1: No, we're we're not particular about colors. We're not really – we don't get excited by that at all. Good thing this isn't a visual medium.
0: <laughs> Tracy, tell me about your story today.
1: Okay, so because I live on the east coast of the United States, obviously I had to do the story of the first witch killed in the Salem witch trials. I will start out by saying a full story of the Salem witch trials – was not in the cards for today's episode the salem witch trials deserves a full episode on its own but i will be telling you the story of bridget bishop who like i said is famous for being the first person executed for witchcraft during the salem witch trials of 1692
0: have you ever been to salem
1: i haven't Which is
0: wild. I'll take you. I I call dibs. 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 It's been, it's recorded. It's going down in the annals of history. You can't go out anywhere anyway right now. I call dibs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Deal. (laughs) Thank you for, thank you. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll give a quick brief summary of the Salem witch trials before we jump into our story, but that quick brief summary is going to come from the History Channel, who summarized the Salem witch trials better than I ever could. (laughs) The infamous Salem witch trials began during the spring of 1692, after a group of young girls in Salem Village, Massachusetts, claimed to be possessed by the devil and accused several local women of witchcraft. As a wave of hysteria spread through colonial Massachusetts, a special court convened in Salem to hear the cases. The first convicted witch, Bridget Bishop, was hanged that June. Eighteen others followed Bishop to the Salem's Gallows Hill, while some 150 more men, women, and children were accused over the next several months. By September of 1692, the hysteria had begun to abate, and public opinion turned against the trials. Though the Massachusetts General Court later annulled guilty verdicts against accused witches and granted indemnities to their families, bitterness lingered in the community, and the painful legacy of the Salem witch trials would endure for centuries. So, Rowan, you might have heard that all of this likely boils down to ergot poisoning. Ergot being a fungus found in rye, wheat, and other cereals.
0: Why, Tracy, I have heard that. Please tell me more.
1: (laughs) I can't wait to tell you about how this is definitely the truth. (laughs) Ergot poisoning can cause delusions, vomiting, and muscle spasms. Combine that with good old general mass hysteria, and you get the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah, that sounds exactly right to me. Yeah, wrap it up, case closed, let's go home. (laughs) Unfortunately, not. While that theory from the 1980s has become widely popular, even some of the sources that I used for today's episode stated that it was possibly ergot poisoning. It's recently been decided that this theory is probably not the case for the Salem witch trials. Lots of mass hysteria, local politics, as well as foreign politics over in England lower-class children enjoying receiving attention, and men wanting to maintain power created the perfect cocktail for this series of awful killings. Some like to argue that the prosecutors use convictions as land grabs, but that's very difficult to prove, as it was unlikely the majority of these women had land to grab, and even if they did, that it would then go up for auction. People also like to say that women in Salem use these accusations to have other women that they don't like killed. Do
0: we think that's true?
1: Kind of. Not necessarily that it was a catty girl and girl thing, but I'll talk about it in my story. Um, Bridget Bishop's in-laws from her second husband did kind of knowingly accuse her of being a witch so that they could get their son's money. Because it went to Bridget when he died. There was
0: so much going on at this time. And I'm really glad that people have moved past ergot poisoning since so many more people would have had to have symptoms than just exclusively young women. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of French immigrants at the time. There were a lot of communities springing up locally that were non-Puritan communities, which... You know, when there are nearby groups that believe and practice very differently than you.
1: Right. It it reinforces the us versus them. If 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 you're in a Puritan area and these other people come in, it almost makes you shrink more into yourself and your beliefs and what you find to be true and normal and the standard. And then the more that people go against that when you already are in a fragile state can cause this kind of reaction.
0: Oh, no, 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 Tracy, we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials, not current
1: politics. Oh, sorry. I thought we were talking about 2021. That's my bad. <laughs> that's my God. Ow, it hurts. <laughs> if you want to learn more about the Salem Witch Trials, Harry Horror has a Twitch VOD on this exact topic. And we always recommend checking out his show. He and his guest, Sage Ryan, talk a lot about this topic on that episode.
0: They are both friends of the podcast, and we cannot recommend it enough.
1: According to Robin Farmer from New England Law Boston, evidence points to several factors that may have contributed to the mass hysteria. An influx of refugees from King William's War with French colonists, a recent smallpox epidemic, the threat of attack from Native Americans, a growing rivalry with the neighboring seaport of Salem town, And the simmering tensions between leading families in the community created the perfect storm of suspicion and resentment. Many historians believe the witches were also victims of scapegoating, personal vendettas, and social mores against outspoken, strong women. Of course, underpinning it all was the Puritans' deeply held and extraordinarily influential religious beliefs, which were also central to their legal system. Now, on to our leading lady. (laughs) Bridget Bishop, it seemed, committed the indefensible sin of being an unusual woman in a time and place that thrived on the usual. Said to have kept unusual hours, wear brightly colored clothing, and stand up to authority figures, she was an easy target for her community.
0: Oh my god, she was reverse goth. Like in a time in which everyone wore plain clothing Mm -hmm. she had to rebel with color
1: i said this in a tiktok video i made while i was researching this but this main part of this story takes place in 1692 from 1690 to 1694 julie Dobney was overseas in france singing in the opera seducing men and women alike and having sword fights bridget bishop Gets killed because she wore a collar and had a thought out loud.
0: It is a really great testament to where you are dramatically affecting your life. Mm-hmm.
1: So Bridget Bishop was most likely born in 1632 as Bridget Playfer. She married her first husband, Captain Samuel Wesselby, on April 13, 1660 in Norfolk, England. She gave birth to two sons, John and Benjamin, and a daughter named Mary. Six years after their marriage, her first husband passed away. And while I couldn't find the reason for his death, it seems like there was no reason to suspect any wrongdoing on her part.
0: She poisoned him. That's the only logic.
1: The only logic. She was a woman. Had to poison him. That same year, the now Bridget Wesselby remarried in July and wed a man named Thomas Oliver, a widower and prominent businessman. One year after their marriage began, she gave birth to another daughter, Christian. After Thomas' death in 1679, Bridget inherited his money and his estates. Her in-laws were jealous of this fact and accused her of witchcraft. It didn't help that she had a terrible relationship with her second husband. To quote the Salem Witch Museum, Perhaps what made her neighbors most uncomfortable about Bishop had been her relationship with her second husband, While married to Thomas Oliver, Bridget gave every sign of being an abused wife. She would appear on the streets with bruises and scratches. However, it was believed that she was equally an abusive wife. The Olivers were known to verbally fight and do so in public, even on the Sabbath. The couple was once charged for that offense and told to pay a fine or stand in the public square as punishment. Oliver's daughter Mary paid the fine for her father, but declined payment for her stepmother. And so, Bridget was made to stand in the public square in penance for such behavior. Bridget Bishop was clearly a person who made others uncomfortable.
0: They fought aloud on the Sabbath, and the community said, Pay us or be punished.
1: Mm hmm truly did not know that that was a thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and her husband said that he uh, he was claimed to have said that she was a bad wife. The devil had come bodily to her, and she sat up all night with the devil. Which is a bold accusation. She sounds like an insomniac. She just sounds like someone who doesn't sleep well. I think she didn't sleep well. I think she wasn't willing to stand up for abuse. And... She just, to me, sounds like she would be a normal person. I think, once again, is slightly one of those extraordinary people, given that I think many normal people would sort of bow to the pressures of society. So I do think it takes an extraordinary person to go beyond the normal standards of society. But I don't think she she was—she was—she wasn't doing anything crazy at all. But because of all of this, she was put on trial— and ultimately acquitted, but this would be her first and only escape from the claim of witchcraft.
0: If you could still accuse women of witchcraft for staying up too late, you and I would
1: both be in hot water. Oh yes, we'd be on hot water for like eight different reasons, though.
0: That is true. We we have a lot of I opinions. I think staying up late
1: is the least of it. <laughs> <laughs> we would not be put on trial for we wearing colors.
0: My darling, your hair is blue. <laughs> My work here is done. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's fair. All right. Anyway, eight years after this uh, trial and acquittal, she married Edward Bishop. This was in 1687. He was a prosperous Sawyer who was one of the founders of the First Church of Beverly where they lived. It is said whether to support later claims or as a matter of fact, we're not sure, but it's said that she ran the tavern he owned alongside her husband, which, first mistake, And it was said that she expressed herself by wearing exotic and bright clothing. The audacity. And also the second mistake.
0: But exotic and bright clothing is still being buttoned up from neck to ankle, right? Yeah, it's
1: just literally she wore red.
0: How did she even get the red clothing if someone wasn't
1: making it? Well, like you said, there there were other towns and and communities around. Ah, she was colluding with the enemy. Mm Mm-hmm. Recent historical interpretations now say that she was most likely just a resident of Salem town and not a tavern owner, like people say. In April of 1692, Bridget Bishop was accused of bewitching five young women, Abigail Williams, Anne Putnam Jr., Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, and Elizabeth Hubbard, all of whom claimed that the shape resembling Bishop would pinch, choke, or bite them. John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin presided over Bridget's examination on April 19, 1692, and a record was given of her trial by Cotton Mather in his book, Wonders of the Invisible World. Whenever Bishop looked at her accusers during the trial, the afflicted girls writhed and convulsed, and only her touch would revive them. Judge Hawthorne accused Bishop of afflicting the girls, which she denied. I never saw these persons before, nor I never was in this place before, said Bishop. I am as innocent as the child unborn. I am innocent of a witch.
0: We gotta talk about it. Yep. Young girls in a group deciding to do evil
1: are scary. Scary. I think the—I talk about this a little bit later. I have notes on this later. But I think the big—to me, the big reason the air got poisoning, thing stuck around so much— Is it made the people accusing one another seem like they were genuinely trying to do good. If you're having delusions and hallucinations and you truly believe this thing, you're not inherently doing anything evil. Take that away and it puts an extremely harsh light on this event.
0: I don't know how old these girls were, but I'm going to say maybe middle school age.
1: I think so. It's just said young ladies.
0: I would cross the street to avoid middle schoolers. Now, oh, as an adult God. woman. Yes. Middle schoolers, as a genre,
1: are demons. They're demons. They're, they, ooh, there's so many jokes about it from comedians and stuff. But, like, they just get to the heart of what of what makes you insecure. And they have enough power that they can do real damage. And they're Brains haven't developed enough that they truly have empathy, fully figured out.
0: Yeah, <sighs> and it is this interesting time. And it was a bit different back then. But you don't, have to necess- you don't have to hold down a nine to five and pay all the bills in most circumstances. You just have time to be terrible to people oh that God. you don't
1: like. So Yeah. The idea that they would accuse her... And then continue to faint in court whenever she looked at them and writhe and wouldn't stop until she physically touched them. It's just a whole nother level when you take away any genuine belief in what she did.
0: I was wondering if they get any positive reinforcement or attention in any other way. I highly doubt it. Yeah, if this is the first circumstance where people are paying attention to them and, you know, taking care of them, oh, you poor baby. Like, yeah, this is the money moment for them. It reminds me of the Fox sisters. Yes. Because they told the lie about the ghosts and then everyone's like, oh, this is true. And in some ways you're too deep into the lie because you're still young enough to go, Mm -hmm. oh, I don't want to get in trouble. And then you're old enough to feel the benefit of power
1: exactly and and you're old enough for them to believe that you genuinely know what you're talking about
0: so if we're calling any women witches in this story it's not it's
1: not bridget bishop it's not bridget so according to wikipedia more allegations were made during the trial including that of a woman saying that the apparition of bishop tore her coat upon further examination her coat was found to be torn in that exact spot Mather mentions that the truth of these many accusations carried too much suspicion. However, Anne Putnam states Bishop called the devil her god, while other people like Richard Coman testified against Bridget Bishop, accusing her of taking hold of their throats and ripping Coman and his wife out of bed. Other girls accused her of harming them with just a quick glance. Even Bishop's own husband claims she praises the devil, William Stacy, a middle-aged man in Salem Town, testified that Bishop had previously made statements to him that other people in the town considered her to be a witch. He confronted her with the allegation that she was using witchcraft to torment him, which she denied. Another local man, Samuel Shaddock, accused Bishop of bewitching his child and of also striking his son with a spade. He also testified that Bishop asked him to dye lace— which apparently was too small to be used on anything but a poppet, a doll used in spell casting. John and William Bly, father and son, testified about finding poppets in Bishop's house and also about their cat that appeared to be bewitched or poisoned after a dispute with Bishop. Other victims of Bishop, as recorded by Mather, included Deliverance Hobbs, John Cook, Samuel Gray, Richard Coman, and John Louder these people did not like her.
0: They really piled on. And you and I have talked about this a bit, and I certainly don't want to get it. You know, as we said, Salem, the Salem Trials deserve a whole episode. But this community did have a community charter. They did have law. And until the Salem Witch Trials... You had to have evidence to convict people and bringing false evidence against someone could result in you being put on trial. But because Mm -hmm. of the hysteria of the witch trials, they allowed dreams and these magical instances to be considered real evidence. And that again goes back to the puritanical culture of religion clearly definitively affecting the physical world the devil is present and he will make your crops fail
1: Mm-hmm. it makes my blood boil me too i know it's hard to read this and just hear about the people piling on and on and on because when everyone around you is doing it it's it's just i don't know it's just it's hard to get into that headspace Well, you see people do stuff like this today, too. Like, when you're just in such an insular mindset and you're in a bubble, it's easy to jump on.
0: I think that you and I have definitely um, calmed down somewhat from the day that we were just raging together on the phone about witches.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I have a little script for us. An article written by Sarah Nell Walsh shares this exchange between Bishop and Hawthorne, her judge, Rowan. Can I Hmm. request your assistance in acting out this dialogue? Oh, I get to play the... Oh, I get to play the witch. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Bishop staunchly states, I
0: am no witch.
1: To which Hawthorne replies, Why, if you have not wrote in the book, yet tell me how far you have gone. Have you not to do with familiar spirits?
0: I have no familiarity with the devil.
1: How is it then that your appearance doth hurt these? I am innocent. Why do you seem to act witchcraft before us by the motion of your body which seems to have influence upon the afflicted?
0: I know nothing of it. I am innocent to a witch. I know not what a witch is.
1: How do you know then that you are not a witch?
0: I do not know what you say.
1: How can you know you are no witch and yet not know what a witch is?
0: I am clear. If I were
1: any such person, you should know it. You may threaten, but you can do no more than you are permitted. I am innocent of a witch. (gasps) Ah, yes! (laughs) (laughs) Tell me that doesn't have the same energy of the Monty Python and the Holy Grail scene of like, they put the fake nose on her and she's like, this isn't my nose. And they're like, okay, yeah, it's not her nose. It's like, she turned me into a newt. I got better. Like it's just you it she's like I I am not a witch. I don't even know what a witch is. And he's like then how do you know you're not one? She's like because you can't <laughs> prove a negative. Right. And right. that's
0: that's I wonder if this mother trucker knows it. I wonder if he knows oh, it. Yeah. I, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I want to wanna believe he's dumb because otherwise I just want to mm, mm.
1: Uh, yeah, otherwise it just, it's 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 seething rage deep in your gut.
0: And in my head, she's got kind of a, well, truly she'd probably have a British accent, but uh, yeah. she's she's got kind of a Catherine Hepburn vibe. Like mm-hmm. she just, she's sassy. You can't do anything to her. But I imagine she was scared out of her mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. After her comment of, I am innocent of a witch, apparently she rolled her eyes towards heaven. Immediately, all the girls rolled theirs, and it seemed to the court that a devil was on the loose. An adult woman rolled her eyes, so a bunch of preteens rolled their eyes? Mm-hmm. After this examination, Bishop was asked if she was not troubled to see the afflicted girls so tormented. She answered no. When asked if she thought they were bewitched, she answered she did not know what to think about them. Ooh. Mm-hmm. She was over it. Basically, she the first time she was accused of witchcraft, she just denied, 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 and she was acquitted. This time, apparently, she pretty quickly realized that no matter how much she denied, they had already decided that she was guilty.
0: Right, and in a lot of witch trials, unfortunately, if you admit that you're a witch, it can... Um you get tortured less you
1: get tortured right well it's yeah exactly damn if you do damn if you don't it's just to what extent so uh in the beginning of that dialogue you heard him say something about signing a book and that is in reference to the girl saying that she apparently appeared and tried to convince them to sign the devil's book which was literally signing their name in a book as a pact with the devil bridget bishop's trial lasted only eight days she was inspected after sentencing and apparently found t- to have a third nipple, a sure sign of being a witch. But upon a second investigation was found to possess only the usual two.
0: No, no, no. Yep. Ah, and ah, hearing that a woman was inspected while being in custody makes my skin crawl. There is no way that this woman was not assaulted in some way.
1: Oh, the best case scenario, it is an extremely humiliating experience. And that's the best case scenario. What's worst is Mather states that in the end, the biggest thing that condemned Bishop was the amount of lying she did in court, as her witchcraft was clearly evident. This lying, as it turned out, was most likely just an innocent woman begging for her life and refusing to admit to a false confession. Her case served as a model for future cases in which a person would be accused, they would deny those accusations, and members of the community told acts of witchcraft by the accused, and then the sentencing would commence. Salem Museum states that Bishop was convicted of witchcraft in short order. On June 10th, Sheriff George Corwin escorted her from Salem Jail along Prison Lane to Main Street, and finally to a spot of common pasture at the edge of town. A crowd gathered... Bridget Bishop was hanged by the neck until she was dead on Proctor's Ledge at Gallows Hill, the first of 19 people to be so executed. Instead of this first execution bringing people to their senses, it was not the end, but the beginning. Bridget Bishop was among the last of the innocent victims to be exonerated by legislation passed in 2001 in Massachusetts.
0: I know it's a podcast, but I'm
1: so mad I have no words. I know. Rowan's just been shaking her head for the last five minutes straight.
0: In- I heard, and this is 100% hearsay, I've not fact-checked this, but I heard that in some, many of the hangings, they didn't, they weren't
1: very good at hanging them, so they suffered mm. for a
0: very long time.
1: Yeah, it was, hangmen were really good good hangmen were prized for what they could do
0: and then on the other hand i'm sitting here going well at least they weren't burned to death why why am i sitting here saying that that's the that's what i'm offered by history history is not providing a good ending here
1: yeah that is a common misconception that witches were burned that was actually very rare for the most part almost exclusively witches were hanged
0: mostly it was british witches that were burned too
1: Mm -hmm. yeah but the salem witch trials the idea of burning witches not Not really they don't want that devil dust in their lungs no it's just that's too spicy (laughs) (laughs) it is spicy yeah all right you ready for story yeah I, told, I decided to tell the story from the point of view of Bridget the night before being killed. Okay. It's not very sad. It's more I was angry. <laughs> okay. It's just kind of an angry story. History will not look kindly upon me, I think. The people of my own town, the men, women, and children I am meant to call my own all cast me aside as though I were worse than the mud clinging to their boots. I suppose to them I am. I am a shit stain in the form of a woman. They would never speak so plainly, however, they would use flowery language to describe me. Pretend that their pretty words hold a different meaning than my frank outspoken ones. They all think they are so much better than me because they all fit in. They all belong. I've never belonged. I've never been right. I've never been allowed to just be. My first husband owned me, body and soul. He took and took and took from me until the day he died, and I was supposed to be grateful for that. I was supposed to be thankful that a man was so kind as to own me. Pride. That was my first sin. I've always known that I was better than those around me, that I was so much more than they were. My first husband took that away from me, replaced it with sloth. I was lazy and submissive. I gave up who I was so that I could enjoy the benefits of being a wife. That ended the day he died. Everyone thinks that I killed my first husband. I didn't. But sometimes, in my darkest moments, I wish that I had... My only solace is that if I had been the one to end his life, you wouldn't suspect me for a single second. Not the best argument to defend myself in court, however. Still, despite the accusations, I was left to live my life in peace. Until my second marriage. My second husband was worse. I think it was in part because I refused to let him own me. I'd been a broodmare for another man, and I refused to sit back down and do it again for him. He was rude and mean and secretly drunk half the time, and it was a good day when he died. Looking back, I should have seemed more distraught at his funeral, but it was so hard to be sad when all I could feel was freedom. But freedom and safety are two different things in this world. I could not be free without a home or income, and I could not have those things without a husband. I suppose that makes my next sin, greed. I wanted so much more than I had. I may have inherited from my late husband, but it was only stored under my name, meant to be used by another husband. Only a man could have what another man owned. Envy came into my heart then. Why should a man be allowed property and title when a woman is the one who runs it all anyway? Did I not have a mind of my own? Did all men think women simply lacked a thought inside their pretty little heads? I wanted to be seen as more than just a widow and a woman. I wanted what men had. My third marriage was fun for a time. I refused to marry unless it suited me. We ran a tavern together and enjoyed drinks and food and each other. Dear Lord, forgive me for my lust and gluttony, but those were truly the best times of my life. Late night drinks with cheerful people. Until the day of the accusations. I'd never even heard of the women who accused me of torturing them. And yet their word against mine had me dragged across town and sat in a chair in front of a judge. Fingers wagged in my face by men with breath that could knock over a horse. Veins popped out of their skulls as they waxed on about Satan and the devil and witchcraft and me. The more they spoke, the angrier I got. The angrier I got, the more they were convinced that they were right. The crowd cheered and booed and hissed as they spoke, and with each word a weight crashed down on my chest. I realized I was dead the moment I walked through those courtroom doors. I think of all the sins I've committed in my life, it was wrath that did me in. I wish I had been all those things they accused me of. Were I a witch so powerful as to rip men from their beds at night, they should weep to be in my presence. I would rip the very skulls from their heads and drink their blood as if it were fine wine— I would scream and tear and torture them all the way down into the pits of hell. I would be the very devil himself if it meant I could see the shock in their faces as I scorched the very soul from their bodies with the force of my hatred and my anger. I may die tomorrow, hung from the gallows, but I commit here and now that my soul should live on only to torment those who have wronged me. I had not made a deal with the devil before this day, but I will do so now. If a witch I am to die, then a witch I will become. I am a woman. A widow. A wife. And now I am a witch. And I will never let them forget what they made me become. I
0: like the seven deadly
1: sins structure. Thank you. I added that in. I kind of was just thinking through her life and I realized there were moments in it where she very clearly wanted things in an envious way or they talked about how she seemed very carefree during that time with her third husband and it just felt like it was a good way to tie her life together.
0: It was nice to think about or to more closely examine the fact that as a woman in that society, Bouncing from husband to husband, quote-unquote, wasn't necessarily just a, a pleasurable option, if at all. Mm-hmm. It was a means to an end.
1: Yeah. Because if you think about it, she couldn't own anything on her own. So it was a necessity to have a husband if you were going to in any way be safe or have a roof over your head. I wonder what happened to her children. I couldn't find that. Um. I read one article that was like, she never had any kids. And then I read another that listed all the kids she had. Like, it was really all over the place.
0: Well, the whole thing was started by hearsay. So getting the actual history is
1: difficult. Yeah. So, I mean, we touched on everything that I had. The idea that ergot poisoning was probably not the case, which makes this whole thing so much scarier. I... just think if you take away those hallucinations and the delirium produced by ergot what do you have left behind? You just have a bunch of self-righteous and angry people who genuinely want to see other people hurt. Uh, it just makes everything scarier. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, I wish I was. It would be a lot nicer to be surprised. <laughs> yeah, it really would.
0: Tracy, now what is the tea? Based on your story. What is it called? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I didn't think of it. Oh, no. Um, I'm the kind of thinking air got poisoning.
1: Ooh, that is good. I
0: mean, it's a real specific market to name a tea air got poisoning.
1: <laughs> I was thinking because her last name is Bishop to call it Bishop Wicked. Okay bishop wicked tea okay something with bishop something playing with that kind of religious right idea
0: um it might require more thought if anyone who's listening is just screaming ideas right now we would love to hear them
1: please 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 share them
0: knowing that tracy was doing the salem witch trials because we we've planned this one out a bit And knowing how angry that story both makes us, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I hunted and hunted to find a story about a historical witch that had a happy ending.
1: (gasps) Oh, my God. Mm. For for context, I told Rowan what I was doing because I was very excited about it and then let her pick whatever she wanted. So this is new to me. Yeah,
0: I really want to lead you down the garden path on this, but just don't get your hopes up. Oh, no. (laughs) I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Brought me up and then crashed me back down.
0: I want to do it. I just can't. So I, today, I am covering Mother Shipton. I found this story. It is from 16th century England. And our witch actually lives long enough to die of old age. But as okay. I said, the longer that I worked on it, the angrier I got, because researching witches is just infuriating. Today, we are exploring the history of Mother Shipton, the English prophetess and herbalist, and lastly, a famous witch. Mother Shipton was born in England in 1488 to a 15-year-old orphaned girl named Agatha. At the time, our faithful witch was named Ursula Santil, or Ursula Southhill, because the British love to mess with uh-huh. French names, or my personal favorite, Ursula Soothtell.
1: Ooh! I mean, that's
0: just marketing,
1: uh, it, right? I'm gonna say that's either marketing or prophetic.
0: It's just bullshit marketing that came later. <laughs> The earliest collected sources of the day of her birth are by author and biographer Richard Head in 1667 and by John Conyers in 1686. The Conyers version of her life has a fantastic title. The strange and wonderful history of Mother Shipton, plainly setting forth her prodigious birth, life, death, and burial, with an exact collection of all her famous prophecies, more complete than ever yet before published, and large explanations showing how they have all along been fulfilled to this very year.
1: That, I have to wonder if Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett stole their title of Good Omens from that, because it is Good Omens, the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which...
0: It was very common in that time period to make your whole title a logline for
1: the book. I love it so much. It's just, oh. I, I just find it very funny. The same way I find, basically, I find everything about Good Omens funny. So if it reminds me of Good Omens, you know I'm going to enjoy it. Right. The strange and wonderful history of Mother Shipton plainly setting forth her prodigious birth, life, death, and burial. Like, it's just, mm. So good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> my original story idea for today was based out of my own wrath for all of okay. the people who have mistreated witches. And I realized that I just couldn't go there because I would be I the the episode would just be me screaming one long scream with no breath.
1: <laughs> so I always an option. <laughs>
0: Next episode on Willing and Fable, Screaming. (laughs) So I broke my story up into two mini-stories that will appear at various points. So this is the first of them. Okay. It was a dark and stormy night. A violent thunderstorm was pelting down rain in such baleful sheets that no man would dare to leave the warm fireside. In a distant cave in the surrounding forest of Nairsboro there was a skull-shaped pond. Some would call it a well. So eerie were its waters that the children of the village would sneak to its small shores and drop a small stick or object inside. Returning hours or days later, they would find their trinket turned to stone. On this particular eve, on the shores of the petrifying well, there was a young girl crying out as a midwife knelt over her. With each crash of thunder, the small girl would cry out so that the stony walls around the pair would echo with her unceasing frustration. It was hours before the child finally appeared, but when it did, it cackled. Most babies cry. Some stay silent, but the midwife was shocked to hear the baby yowling like a villain. At the very same moment her joy first pealed, the thunderstorm stopped all at once. A raven shrieked in the woods, and then all was silent in the darkness. The midwife would report to the villagers the next day that the child was born massive and hideously deformed, with a horrible crooked nose and a hunched back, bowed legs and bulging eyes. She confessed that she had half a mind to throw the creature into the well and let it turn to rock. She raved about the smell of sulfur permeating the air when the girl finally whelped. So vivid was her tale that the townsfolk nearly ran to the cave and snatched up the newborn themselves. But when Agatha finally stumbled from the trees, babe in arms... They were somewhat embarrassed to have feared the ugly, mewing thing. But this was only the beginning, and the new baby Ursula would grow. Tracy, how did that make you feel about the story that is to come?
1: (laughs) As with everything with this episode, uh, Rowan, it made me intrigued and angry.
0: She rolled her eyes when I got to the description <laughs> of the baby. It's just like
1: the classic hook nose old lady. Did she have warts? Like, I mean, come on.
0: Yeah, you're taking the words right out of my mouth. So this witch story has every classic witch trope. Your, your nose you mentioned, the hunchback, the scary birth with devil smells, mm-hmm. and the weirdly aware baby that doesn't cry, it cackles. Oh, my God. But then we're getting into some really interesting imagery. You know, we've got the dark, stormy night, the deep woods. hmm And then we have the famed yonic symbol of the wet cave, where everything that goes into the dampness comes out harder.
1: I feel like I'm taking a college philosophy class once again everything dark and wet is feminine everything is a symbol for the wet cave
0: this story when i first started it immediately made me think about ursula the cave dwelling sea witch Mm -hmm. from disney's little mermaid and i do have a theory that i cannot confirm that someone on that team was inspired by this story There's a lot more tropiness, so get ready.
1: Let's do it. No one
0: knew who Ursula's father was, and Agatha would not say. At one point, she was even put before the local magistrate, but she still would not confess who the father was. Of course, rumors abound, Agatha was a poor, starving girl seduced by the devil. Or even better, she was an evil witch who knowingly consorted with Satan to conceive an hideously ugly
1: child that's a lot of intent to put on a 15 year old girl yeah and this is the point where versions of the story start
0: to diverge in some tellings the mother and daughter were ostracized from the town and agatha and her new baby are forced to live in the cave in which ursula was born after two years Agatha leaves her child and runs off to a convent. There's another version that says she was immediately sent away to a convent after Ursula's birth because she was an evil woman who had hooked up with the devil. And then Ursula lived in the cave by herself for the first two years of her life.
1: Okay, that's that one is wild. There's another version.
0: Where Agatha goes off to the convent and a Mm -hmm. family kindly adopts Ursula and sends her to school, where she only stays for a brief time because the other children bullied her so badly because she needed to walk with a cane.
1: That one's so sad. Somehow sadder than her raising herself as a baby. This is all very weird.
0: It's just Trope City. Are we making our witch because she lived with her mom in a cave and the witch mom taught her witchy ways? Did she live in a cave by herself as a baby who must have been helped along by the devil or she wouldn't have survived? Or was she abused by her peers and then made a witch by society?
1: It's your D&D character choose-your-own-adventure.
0: Absolutely. A popular
1: version of the story,
0: because it combines... Elements from every telling is believed to come from 17th century sources. After the young girl and her baby suffered in the cold, wet cave for two years, the abbot of Beverly stepped in and said, You get thee to a nunnery, specifically the convent of the Order of St. Bridget in Nottinghamshire, and you get thee to a foster home that I've arranged for you in Naresborough.
1: Your acting there was was uncanny and
0: truly inspired i'm really going for that daytime emmy today <laughs> unless you're listening to this at nighttime in which case i want a primetime emmy mhm when she was still two but now living with her foster family ursula's new mother went out on an errand when the woman returned the front door of their small home was wide open she gathered the neighbors to confront what she presumed might be a burglar hiding in their home. Suddenly, they heard a loud wailing that sounded like, quote, a thousand cats in consort. They all rushed in to find Ursula's cradle toppled over and her wee naked form sitting on top of the iron bar where pots were fastened over the fireplace. The child was Cackling.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. Fine. She, uh, sounds like she was just a really tough toddler. I mean, now
0: we just got cats involved and running around naked and sitting. That's just toddler in fireplaces things. Fireplaces <laughs> where you shouldn't sit. I just in a June second, eighteen seventy seven issue of Patriot, a Harrisburg, Pennsylvania newspaper. They described her time at school. "Quote, Mother Shipton." if books do not lie, was the possessor of a remarkable amount of sagacity. She is said, even in her school days, to have had such a discernment that when her mistress told her the names of the first three or four letters of the alphabet, she completed it without further assistance, pronouncing every letter correctly. Then a primer was given to her, and she did as well with that, and the same of every other book. Indeed, she was such a prodigy that she knew without being taught. Every day, it is said, she muttered strange things, and people flocked to her to get their doubts resolved. In later English, to have their fortunes told. There came to her old,
1: young, rich, and poor. I'm, I'm putting this in the same category as her name being Soothtell. Yeah. Or as, as Agnes's yeah. name being that—that That is clearly retroactive storytelling.
0: Oh, absolutely. And what are the odds that this woman who was living in the born in the 15th century in a small town went to a school that had a primer? <laughs> yeah. Are, are you kidding me? <laughs> so I want to be very clear. And you caught it first. I am quoting... A sensational newspaper from the 19th century in Mm -hmm. which they are describing in detail the life of a witch in the 15th century. We are so, so very far out of the bounds of what can be known about this woman's actual life. And that is going to continue as we discuss her more. But I do think it is... An important part of her legacy, as well as the legacy of witches as a whole. At the age of 24, which makes her basically an old maid for the time, Ursula married the local carpenter, Toby Shipton, taking his last name forevermore. By this point, Ursula had been so badly treated in town that she spent much of her time in the forest, learning to become a very skilled herbalist. Please add that to the trope list.
1: Yeah so so all of this so far is the attributes you would give the main character in a young adult new adult fantasy novel that I frankly would read.
0: Well no, 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 it can't she can't be the main character because she's not described as pretty
1: but doesn't know it. Touche, carry on.
0: <laughs> After two years of marriage in 1512, Ursula's husband died. Not only was she accused of witchcraft as a means of getting him to marry her in the first place because she wasn't pretty, she was accused of using her devilish magic to cause his death. After her husband's passing, she moved back into the cave in which she was born. She was all alone and tired of being treated badly because apparently the locals, since her childhood, had called her Hagface.
1: Oh my god. Okay, I know we talk about taking back hag, proud hag, we have proud hag energy, we stand for hags on this podcast, we love a hag on this podcast, we embody hag energy. Few things have made me want to manifest that more than in revenge for this poor woman. The idea of your whole life being referred to as hag face, as someone who has a quote witch's nose with a nice, a nice good, uh, Roman bump in it. It's called a Roman nose and it's cute. <laughs> I I just I'm I'm saying, listen, I'm just saying. I am taking back hag face. It's mine now.
0: <laughs> this is why I had to tell you at the beginning that it wasn't going to be pretty. I I couldn't mm-hmm. lead you down the garden path because I started researching this story going, "She lived to die of old age. It's going to be pretty." <laughs> uh, so, the horrible treatment of this this innocent woman did not end because this is my science fact for you today. There is a type of moth known as the Mother Shipton moth because the design on its wings, quote, looks like the face of a hag.
1: I'm looking up this moth.
0: Can you describe it?
1: It's cute. I mean, moths are generally fairly cute. Oh, my God. I see where I see it. Oh, my God. Okay, so it's because it's it's a moth, so it's kind of got a symmetrical image. So it's on on either side, it looks like there's a woman's face with a hooked nose and a protruding chin uh, with an eye right in the center. And it looks like the noses are kind of touching the way that it's symmetrical
0: and it's all in shades of soft brown in the background with a dark brown kind of,
1: yeah, it's grays and browns and kind of cream colors. Wow, that is mean. <laughs> it's so mean. Oh my god!
0: Even though the townspeople were cruel assholes,
1: they also relied on her for herbal remedies. Of course they did. Sorry, I'm ab- I'm now obsessed with her. She is my she's my icon. I i love her so much i'm so in defense of her and i want a a t-shirt with her on it uh i just i'm sorry i just the i i guess because i i'm i'm just i'm having a moment i'm identifying very strongly with her because as you know as a kid i was and am obsessed with like herbs and how you can use them to help people and the idea of i mean the idea of medicine now i'm a big fan of but I think, you know, I would have I was someone I, I'm someone who would have been very interested in the idea of healing and herbs and going to the forest. And I'm very charmed by all of that. So combine that with the idea that everyone called her a hag because she had a hooked nose. like And just because she's called Mother Shipton, I just get this image of an older woman, which is energy I embody 24-7. I'm connecting really strongly with this woman. So I'm feeling a little protective of her. That's where I'm at.
0: That makes me happy because while I was researching this, I kid you not, I had to take breaks to walk away and scream. And scream. My poor roommate. (laughs) She popped out. Are you okay?
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yes, I'm just learning about how women are treated. Okay. (gasps) She never conceived a child with Toby. Toby. And there is no reason to assume from any evidence that Toby didn't just love her. Like, we have no reason to assume that they didn't have yeah, a happy marriage. Yeah, it's not like she had
1: money. It wasn't like he had any real reason to marry her other than genuinely wanting to.
0: Right. But they called her Mother Shipton forevermore because of how many people in Naresboro that she helped. She became increasingly popular for her skill. And no doubt the dramatic stories about a, quote, hag-faced woman living in a cave brought her notoriety. (laughs) And as her skills grew, she began prophesying, first for the locals and then for travelers who came to see her, and then casting the future of wider and wider audiences. In 1537, King Henry VIII wrote a letter to the Duke of Norfolk. In it, he references, quote, a witch of York, which leads historians to believe that she was not only widely known, but regarded
1: famously by nobles during her time. I like to believe she genuinely had powers. I just I'm now I'm just now choosing to believe that. Well, are you ready? Mm -hmm.
0: The prophecies that she is said to have correctly predicted are. The execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, the Spanish Armada, the Great Plague of London, the Great Fire of London, and my personal favorite, the internet. What? They quote her saying, around the world thoughts shall fly in the twinkling
1: of an eye. Oof. Oh, I love that. I love her so much, Rowan. I love her so much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's all I've got. I'm just really into this woman. I my heart has just grown, and I'm I love her. And on that day, Tracy's heart grew three sizes.
0: Thanks, Mother Shipton. Here's the catch. As Wikipedia succinctly says, quote, the first known edition of her prophecies was printed in 1641, eighty years after her reported death. That quote is referring to Richard Lone's 1641, The prophecy of Mother Shipton in the reign of King Henry VIII, foretelling the death of Cardinal Wolsey, the Lord Percy, and others, as also what should happen in ensuing times.
1: I love these titles. (laughs)
0: Lone quotes Mother Shipton herself. Quote, Then shall be in the north that one woman shall say unto another, Mother, I have seen a man today, and for one man there shall be a thousand women. There shall be a man sitting upon St. James' church hill, weeping his fill, and after that a ship comes sailing up the Thames till it come against London, and the master of the ship shall weep, and the mariners shall ask him why he weepeth. Seeing he has made so good a voyage, and he shall say, Ah, what a goodly city this was, none in the world comparable to it, and now there is scarcely left any house that can let us have drinks for our money. (laughs) That is the quote, apparently from Mother Shipton, that people say was her correctly predicting the Great Fire of London.
1: Yeah, I don't see that in it. What I do see and what our listeners can't see because it's visual is how fun all the spelling is in this. Because this is a time in history when English was very much in the form of spell it how you say it. So there was like (laughs) 16 different ways to spell things. And uh, a lot of these are spelled very phonetically. And I'm team let's go back to that. Here's the thing. Mother Shipton was a contemporary of Nostradamus,
0: who we could believe, from his life, had easy opportunity to write things down at his leisure. But this woman lived in a cave and took care of locals who were terrible to her. I think we can rest comfortably in the knowledge that these written collections are at the very least embellished, if not completely untrue. Oh,
1: probably completely untrue. But again, I I like it. And if, you know, if it's what she wants, I'm into it.
0: <laughs> Brian Benoit, who researched Mother Shipton's life, highlighting later tellings of her stories, brings up an interesting point. Quote, One might wonder why so much time elapsed between the death of Mother Shipton in 1561 and the first regular publications of her biography and prophecies around 1641. Beyond the rarity of printing with movable type that began in Europe just a few decades before Mother Shipton's birth, part of the reason may involve the political issues to which prophetic claims could be put. Embracing a claim that was not fulfilled or quashing a claim that raised impolitic questions and or was properly perceived as coming to pass was fraught with peril. For example, a politician's opponents could have held Mother Shipton's claims and his response to them against him no matter what he did. Perhaps censoring or discouraging their publication was the best approach, especially in days when printing was not common to begin with. It is said that a young woman named Joanne Walker, who was fascinated with the cave-dwelling witch, wrote down all of her prophecies. But that sounds like a convenient
1: invention to me. <laughs> oh, 100%. It, it kind of sounds like she was a local figure. And 100, 100 years after her death, 80 years after her death, whatever it was, was easy to create a kind of mythology around the the real mother shipped in and this prophetess are in my perception of this story two totally different people
0: oh absolutely and i'm caught between wondering if she really did have issues walking or a problem with her back or you know a, a nose that was different than everyone else's or if she just like you know maybe wasn't the prettiest woman in town
1: yeah i don't know i don't know it, it, and it could be that she had some kind of like it could be she had a physical disability when she was born that you know that's very well known to be misinterpreted and like that could be enough to create this entire <laughs> story mythos. around
0: yeah yeah the entire mythos in the world of post-mortem Mother Shipton prophecies. Brian Benoit tells a very cool story, and I laughed out loud when I read it. There was a, quote, hoax perpetuated by the English writer Charles Hindley in 1862 to boost sales of his book on Mother Shipton. The Macon Weekly Telegraph described Hindley's deception in 1880. Quote, In 1862, Mr. Charles Hindley of Brighton, England, issued what purported to be an exact reprint of a chapbook version of Mother Shipton's prophecies from the edition of 1448. In this, for the first time, there were pith and point and special application. All modern discoveries were plainly described, and one prophecy which began, Carriages without horse shall go. And set forth the railroads, telegraphs, steamers, and other modern inventions wound up with the world unto an end shall come in eighteen hundred and eighty one. Ooh!
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It reminds me so much of a combination of uh, War of the Worlds meets the way people interpret Nostradamus.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. If you will remember my quote from the Patriot before, people in America and England in the eighteen hundreds loved Mother Shipton stories, and of course they did. This is post the invention of mm-hmm. spiritualism. Mother Shipton is the ultimate witch for them to love—ugly, cave dwelling, future seeing, and super, super dead.
1: I can't judge. I'm Team Mother Shipton. I'm a hundred percent on board. I love that spiritualism vibe. I basically decorated my house to look like a seance room from the Victorian period. So all in all, I, I this is one case where I cannot judge Victorians. I can't do it.
0: It kind of has a flat earthers vibe, though. Everybody read this and said, oh my god, the world's gonna end in
1: 1881. Oh yeah, and that it- one I can judge. <laughs> that, that, that one I'm I'm able to get behind and say, Yeah, that's a good that's a good goof. You gotta <laughs> admit. <laughs>
0: So even though Charles Hindley came clean in 1873, some people had already bought his story hook, line, and sinker. The fact that someone published a prophecy claiming to be hers meant that people just believed it. Mm -hmm. And when the astronomical world began talking about Proctor's Comet, what they viewed as Evidence to mm-hmm. the world ending just pushed some people over the edge. A few charming, crazy things happened.
1: Ooh, yeah, that's awesome. That reminds me of the 1221 12, 12 Mayan calendar situation. Oh, yeah. Y2K, baby.
0: <laughs> I want to tell you my favorite story about one of her prophecies. My learning of this tale comes from the Sunday Dispatch from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania an issue on September 22nd, 1861. So it should also have some of that good occult-loving flavor from that time period. Right, I love it. Thomas Wolsey, archbishop, statesman, and a cardinal of the Catholic Church, was the sort of man who demanded attention. He swished his long red robes at every opportunity, and very much enjoyed his influence in the court of King Henry the Eighth. Only his influence was waning. A terrifying fact on its own. Only now there was some hag in York who had said, Cardinal Wolsey shall never come to York. What right? had some pock-faced peasant to tell him where in England he may or may not go. They'd informed him that she lived in a cave, for goodness sake. No, no, no. He would not have it. So Wolsey did what many powerful men have done when staring down their own destruction at the hand of a system of their own creation. He was going to take it out on a woman. Cardinal Wolsey was going to have that heretical witch burned at the stake. Let her prophesy that. But he was not venturing into the moors of York before he sent someone else to check it out first. So, Henry Gray, 1st Duke of Suffolk, Thomas Percy, 7th Earl of Northumberland, and Thomas Darcy, steward of the honor of Naresborough, went off in search of a witch. There was also a local magistrate in Naresborough, Reynold Beasley, the son of a former sheriff, who acted as their guide. Truly, the small battalion of men spoke to how <laughs> unafraid of this cave-dwelling witch Wolsey and the nobles were. Well... The four men arrived in Naresborough in no time flat. They rode into town impressing the locals with their fine horses and incredibly clean clothing. The villagers practically fell over themselves to show the men the winding path to the witch's cave, not considering for one moment that to lose Mother Shipton meant losing their life-saving herbal remedies. The Duke... The Earl, the Steward, and the Magistrate expected to find a woman so twisted and bent, so old and feeble, that she resembled an ancient, rotting tree. Mother Shipton emerged from the cave, walking slowly and leaning heavily on her thick cane. Her hair fell in a neat braid down her back, and to the men's surprise, she smiled warmly. True, her nose was a bit westward when her face went east, and surely she had a bit of a stoop and an odd walk. She couldn't be much older than 40, and her teeth were shockingly good. Mother Shipton was no maiden, but she wasn't so scary that she required four men to manage. So... They forgot that she was supposed to be a witch of terrible power who might at any moment turn them all to frogs and devour their legs. They went into the cave and sat by her warm and welcoming fire and sipped on her soothing tea. The Duke of Suffolk spoke first. He did most of the talking most of the time, since he was the tallest, his horse the fastest, and most importantly, his hair was the shiniest. Mother Shipton, he said, if you knew why we were here, you would not welcome us so warmly. The witch quirked a smile at him. I never harm the messenger. Just then, a few nearby crows began a cawing racket, and the magistrate nearly fell from the stump upon which he perched. The duke pressed. You claimed that the cardinal should never see York. I said no such thing, Shipton laughed. He might see York, but he will never come to it. Here, the steward joined in, perhaps too eagerly. He will come here, lady. Then he will have you burned for a witch. The witch spoke so quietly, each man had to lean in. We shall see about that. Then, so quickly that each man reflexively reached for their sword, she pulled the shawl tied around her shoulders and tossed it into the fire. The men stared in awe, as it did not burn. Then she picked up her cane and put it in the fire as well. Still, it did not burn. So she reached her hand into the fire, grabbed the cane out, and tossed it in again. When her demonstration was over, and Mother Shipton held both her unharmed belongings in her unmarred hands, the duke narrowed his eyes at her. What mean you by this? Mother Shipton held up her shawl and said simply, If this had burned, so too would I. The men quivered in their seats like so much pudding. And when they told the Cardinal later, none would know whether she was referring to the cloth or to her own hand. Moments later, thoroughly convinced of her power, each man was desperately asking her for predictions about their future. In her own best interest, Mother Shipton at least tried to make the awful or violent predictions sound vague. By the time the four nobles left Mother Shipton, they were all secretly plotting ways to delay the cardinal so that he might never make it to the rainy woods of York and kill the witch. She had a kind heart that was armored in steel, and they would be sad to see her burned. But they joined up with Wolsey one faithful afternoon as he stood at the top of a high tower in Cawwood. It was only eight miles from York, and so he could see the vast expanse of trees that made the witch's home. The cardinal took his time imagining the massive bonfire he would use to toast the sacrilegious woman. When they arrived at the top of the tower, the earl, shyest of the bunch, relayed the witch's message with the utmost care, hoping it would convince Wolsey he needn't go on his foolish errand. He said, cardinal. She never said you wouldn't see York. She said only that you would not come. And why should you want to anyway? It's only a place for the unwashed and unsaved. The cardinal would not hear it. In fact, knowing that he was so close to the source of his misplaced ire that he could see it from the top of this high tower, he demanded that the party leave the next morning before swishing his robes and storming away. But before the sun came up the next day, King Henry VIII sent for the cardinal. The political schemer of a man was so happy to have the king's attention after their growing distance, that when the messenger appeared, he all but forgot his murderous errand. With utmost speed, he put York behind him and made way for the king. Killing one old witch could surely wait. As prophecy would have it, Cardinal Wolsey died of dysentery on his way to London, having seen York and never come.
1: I love that. I love the good Ah uh, I, I love the uh the play on words and the, the twisting of it. It's so good.
0: So that story The beats of it, of the men going to find her and relaying the story to him as he stood in the high tower, is what was published in that paper. And Cardinal Wolsey did die of dysentery on his way to the king. (laughs) So whoever wrote that story originally, as I imagine it was not Mother Shipton, took a little bit of history there. Despite the controversy around her prophecies being used to publish various books, by all accounts, she was a real woman, Tracy. So, be happy. I'm happy. (laughs) She probably had at least a few ailments or physical characteristics that led to her classic, quote, hunched back and crooked nose description. And though I truly believe it was dramatized over the years... You can absolutely visit Mother Shipton's Cave in Nairsboro, Yorkshire, and the petrifying well is there for you also. That did exist.
1: So we're adding Yorkshire to our worldwide tour because Mm -hmm. it's got Mother Shipton's Cave and also Shibden Hall where Mm -hmm. Ann Lister lived.
0: And so in the U.S. branch of the tour, we're doing Salem and the Mothman Festival. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're from Pennsylvania, so we could look for a squonk at any moment. At any time.
1: I am always on the lookout for a squonk.
0: (laughs) Saving the best fact for last. Ursula Shipton was a witch in England who, by all historical counts, died of old age. Apparently, she made it to the ripe old age of 73 in 1561. That is old for that time when there was no penicillin.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Especially for someone who may or may not have lived in a
1: cave. That's the real shocker.
0: It makes sense that people in York, though unkind to her, wouldn't necessarily go all burn the witch. Because... The North York Moors were known to have hobgoblins within them at the time, which is evidence to the fact that though predominantly Christian, the pagan religions in the area still had quite a hold on daily life. And the fact that she was a witch didn't immediately
1: Mm, mm -hmm.
0: mean that she... I mean to say... Though it was in conflict with the Christianity, there was still that kind of sacred element.
1: It seems like it, in that local area, it definitely had a little bit more respect for some of the old ways than other parts of the world. I know Germany, I, th- I think it was Germany killed the most witches in, in the time between the 14 to 1800s.
0: I've read a lot of stories that were set in Ireland, Wales, you know, this part of England where even though Christianity was in play people were very aware of the legends about creatures mm-hmm. and magics that occurred um, on the land so it definitely
1: affected things the same article i read that said germany had the most witches killed ireland had the fewest
0: awesome thank you ireland mm-hmm. There is a quote from Biography.com in 2014 that made me so mad during my research that I had to stop for the day. (laughs) Quote, Despite her unfortunate appearance, she was said to have been England's greatest clairvoyant and was often compared to her male contemporary, Nostradamus. I am sorry, despite. Despite her unfortunate appearance, I wasn't aware that your appearance had anything to do with your ability to magically scry the future or do any task at all.
1: Oh, I completely agree that despite her unfortunate appearance, first of all, is extremely sexist, is extremely sexist. Second of all, uh, I would argue because of her quote unquote unfortunate appearance, She's still known 500 years later. But sure, her unfortunate appearance was definitely a hurdle she overcame in being just as great as her super hunky peer Nostradamus.
0: I had to pull up a picture of Nostradamus after I read that. (laughs) He's just a white dude with a white beard. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not like he's walking around, Mr. Name Someone Hot.
1: <laughs> Listen, the bar is low. It's low. For for a white dude in that time, the bar is on the floor.
0: He's not the diamond of the season, is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> it, it made my blood boil, and it was written in 2014, and I'm not going to... St- quote the writer in the article because
1: <laughs> yeah
0: as i'm wrapping up this episode i want to address one of the classic questions about witches why are they overwhelmingly identified as women in predominantly christian societies because i felt as if you and i we really ran headfirst into that brick wall Mm-hmm. quote How the original idea of witches was at first suggested to mankind is not easily accounted for. It is still more difficult to assign a reason why this idea was in all ages so intimately connected with women, and particularly with old women. The Witch of Endor is introduced as an old woman, and in every subsequent period, historians, painters, and poets have all exhibited their witches as old women. Nor can we, without pain, relate that a majority of those unhappy creatures condemned a few centuries ago in all the criminal courts of Europe were old women. Might we hazard a conjecture on this subject? We would suppose that in the earlier ages of the world, while women were only kept as instruments of animal pleasure and only valued while they had youth and beauty, as soon as these were over— They were deserted by society and left to languish in solitude, a situation which is, of all others, that in which the human mind is most susceptible to wisdom, which wisdom, soon making them more conspicuous than the ignorant crowd from which they had been exiled, might give birth to a notion that they were assisted by invisible agents. That was from William Alexander's book, the History of Women from the Earliest Antiquity to the Present Time, written in 1796. Now, I do not think that everything said in that quote was true, but it does raise an interesting line of thinking.
1: It does, both given you know that it was written in 1796, but also the idea that we cast women aside and in doing so... They have the chance to really think and grow and learn. And then we look at that and go, you're so weird. Why would you grow and learn and challenge things now that you're no longer being aided by the conventions of society anyway?
0: Yeah, the thing that I loved about finding this quote is that this man writing in 1796 put this in a book that was the history of women from antiquity to present, as if this is the definitive mm-hmm. telling. And mm-hmm. I'm interested in the fact that a man, from that time period, writing this book kind of went there. So that's nice. That's a little bit of lifting.
1: Yeah, it touches on what is so clear to anyone who has been in a situation or experienced a position where they are not privileged of when society at large does not serve you it forces you to think about everything so differently it forces you to be more introspective it forces you to to constantly evaluate your place in society and in this case he's seeing that but not he's he's touching it on a very narrow point of you know i think that's what's giving these women the agency They're already cast out of society. They have to find a way to exist in a space that inherently doesn't want them to exist in it. And then wonders why they're now thinking so differently. I
0: cannot help but think about that quote in reference to the reckoning that America is having right now with, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the coup at the Capitol mm-hmm. and all of these news media sources that are ma- mainstream media sources that are having for the first time in the last decade to talk about privilege to talk about mm-hmm. privilege to, That that's just that's just the word of it and I am very glad that we live in a time where we have access to other sources of information and even though i think it's a double-edged sword the fact that people who could not print books before who could not Mm -hmm. publish articles who could not appear on the news can now have a platform and we have phones to document horrible atrocities that no one wanted to reckon with and i'm glad that you know william alexander is not the end-all, be-all of this line of thinking.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, we've got m- more, and I dare say better, histories of women since he wrote this in the late 18th century.
0: <laughs> what's the name of the tea?
1: You tell me. What's the name of the tea?
0: Oh, yes, it is
1: me. Oh, shoot. <laughs>
0: hmm... I want like witches revenge. I want mm. I don't know.
1: I like face. the idea of just the prophecy. <laughs> the tea. <prophet-y.
0: The>, oh <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: well, ah, I'm not sorry. You
0: heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen.
1: <laughs> does that <sighs> does that do it? Did we do an episode about witches?
0: Tracy and I just took a deep sigh of like
1: rage. <sighs> you know what I need now?
0: <laughs> what? I
1: need something good.
0: All right. Tracy.
1: Ooh. Do you want me to go first?
0: Yeah. Tracy, tell me something good.
1: Okay. My something good is that this past week I started my first ASL class. So I'm taking an American Sign Language class online and Wednesday was my first class. And it feels so good to be learning something new. Mm. It also feels so good and horrible to do something that really scares you. I was so nervous before the class. I was so nervous. And it was just that nervousness because for the first time in so long, I was doing something completely new with other people. And it was, you know, that classic, like, gotta make sure I'm on the, the call correctly and my camera's looking good because you have to have it set up where you can see your hands. And it, how does the homework work? And, and, and it, you know, very quickly, I got over that and then we just got to focus on the class and what's really interesting about this class is they the the teacher does not speak. She only speaks in sign language and she types. So we had an interpreter for the first class, but from now on starting next week, we are not going to have an interpreter. And she's going to be teaching us and she's made these amazing videos for us to help us out. We have a textbook, but it's just, I'm, it was really cool. And it was really cool to meet the other people taking it. It was a lot of people our age. Mm. It was me and my sister and two of our friends. And then it was a group of five friends who all know a person who exclusively communicates in ASL. And they all wanted to be able to communicate with their friend. And they're just, they were really, really cool people. And it was, it was two other uh, women in the class as well. Like it's just, it felt really good. It just felt really good to be learning something, to be excited about something, and to just jump into something that scares you. I always think it's really good to do something that really scares you.
0: Yeah, especially because nothing terrible can come of that fear. Right. It's not a a, a true fear in that you're not going to die. Um, right. It's like pushing you out of your own bubble in a really exciting way. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I uh, I always wish that we had that opportunity in school, and I
1: I think ASL would be the language to learn. You know, it's really helpful if you're in a crowded bar or something. Not that I imagine I'll ever be in that situation again, but it's just really really cool to learn.
0: Is it a place that you can post on the website so people who wanted to take the classes could go there?
1: If you are interested in learning ASL. A ton of places, like the place I'm taking my class at, have moved from in-person to online classes. That's why I'm able to take this class. Normally, I'd have to drive an hour to go to where it's being held. So if something you're interested in, I'd say start looking it up now and see if you can take a class. It is super worth it. With all of that, hey, Rowan. Hey, me. Tell me something good.
0: So this week, I was filled with righteous anger from more reasons than witches. (laughs) (laughs) And... I, uh, <laughs> I've i been really wanting to make some time to paint uh, watercolors,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's not something that I'm particularly good at. Uh, I'm used to the artistic endeavors that I pursue being artistic endeavors that I do for work or right. that I'm very highly trained in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mother's a painter, so when I told her she got me some lovely watercolors for Christmas, and I just was not making time to do it because the last few weeks have been a bit of a marathon. And mm-hmm. I think you and I have talked about it. Just when you have a chance to relax, you just lay there.
1: Just yes.
0: And so my lovely, lovely, very close friend who is a young teenager and I did a video call where we just painted together. And That's
1: so nice. Yeah, and
0: we're working on a the same prompt, which is mm-hmm. really fun. Because we get to see how we each interpret it. Mm-hmm. And we both just kind of got to be frustrated about our very different lives. You know, she's young and in school and I'm a adult woman. And I like that I get to hear about what she is concerned about because I care about her and I love her mm-hmm. and I want to know what's going on. But also, I learn so much. She's just such an insightful person. And then I also like that we are both a part of not being ageist because I think when we were growing up there was a lot of like you have to hang out in your age group Mm -hmm. and I think that people of all ages are cool or awful you can can find them anywhere (laughs) yes
1: oh I love that sentiment people of all ages are cool and awful (laughs) cool or awful no I stand I stand by what I said (laughs)
0: So anyway, I made time to paint and it was really fun and like messy and, you know, I had all the makings of catharsis.
1: hmm Good. I'm so glad. That sounds like it was such a good time. Look at us pursuing
0: things we're not great at that bring us bliss. Look at that. Yes.
1: Yes. And and cheers to the people in our lives who, who get us to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is all of them. Yes, it is. So everyone, thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend.
0: Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall, that's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ashe, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willinginfable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.